the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider leaving us a dollar a month there, or if not, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Today, Taylor and I are pleased to bring you our, our guest, returning guest rather, Dan Smith, the Lust Scholar and Professor at Purdue. It's wonderful to see you back on the show, uh, Dan, and we're looking forward to discussing your translation of Deleuze's The Fold. So it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me back. It's really nice to have you back. And I hope that, uh, you know, you've been in you've been in good spirits and good health. You know, you were such a trooper coming on last time you were ill and you, you powered through it. I couldn't tell listening back that there was anything wrong with you health wise and that not only goes to show to your perseverance, but obviously Coop's uh, editing skills. So <laughs> I just want to thank you again for that. And I, I've told a few people how much I admired that because I, I, I told you to reschedule and you were just, uh, it was great. It meant a lot to me. It meant even more than it normally would. So thanks for well, coming. I think, the po- yeah. I think the podcast was therapeutic. So it actually, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, because, uh, you know, you probably had enough soup and lying in bed. So it was maybe nice to to get up and, and sort of be with us virtually. I just, um, again, wanted to thank you for coming on. And I guess I would just say, you know, I asked you maybe last time we asked you about your origin as in terms of, of doing philosophy. And maybe you said a little bit about translating, but I did want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit more, some sort of biographical note. I, of course, as a fellow translator, you know, I'd love to hear you could tell us something about some of your forays into that area, because I think that that's part and parcel of being a scholar that I admire. But if you have something even more recent, you know, just, just to share with the audience, I'm curious. Well, here, I can give you a little story because I'm actually on sabbatical this year in Paris at the moment, which I feel very lucky about. But I met with a colleague uh, and a friend called Ellie During uh, the other day. Yeah. And one of the books that that really influenced me when I was in grad school was a little book published by Cambridge University Press called Modern French Philosophy by a guy named Vincent Descombes, mm-hmm. D-E-S-C-O-M-B-E-S. I don't know if you know it. But really, for a while, that was my Bible because it was one of the few books available at the time that kind of gave an overview of what was going on in French philosophy at the time by someone who, frankly, was not that sympathetic. He was very much more an analytic philosopher, but it was great. And it, if he mentioned anyone, I went to the library and tried to, you know, see who they were and, and, and you know, the names Bataille, Klesowski, Foucault. Mm-hmm. And so that book was a kind of Bible for me. And it was funny, I met with Ellie During the other day, who's younger, but not by much, but we were chatting and he I mentioned that to him, and he said the same thing, that that was really the book that got him into this period in French philosophy. I found that was somewhat interesting that that book for both of us had had this kind of um, 
I don't know, initiation status to it, even though it's by someone who was not necessarily sympathetic with the whole tradition he was writing about. But it was quite a good introduction. So I'd, you know, I'd recommend that to people if they're interested in learning more about uh, what happened in that period. Now, did you have that in the original French or did you have, because I have, I have a, a hard copy of the translation and um, thinking about the Bible so, is interesting because it's, it's only about what, 200 something it's pages, very short. right? Yeah. It was actually meant to be, I think it was published in English first because oh, okay. um, there was a guy at Cambridge or Oxford, I can't remember, one of the Oxbridges uh, named Alan Montefiore who asked Vincent de Combe to write it. And he was one of the few people at Oxford who was interested in continental slash European. Gotcha. And so he got um, Vincent de Combe to write it. So I believe he wrote it with the aim at the English language audience to try to explain to us right. what was happening in France. And then it got translated, published in the original French. And the title was different. It was called Le Même et l'Autre, The Same and the Other, mm, okay, which was okay. the rubric he was using to interpret um, French philosophy at the time. But it's curious. It's a good question, our origin stories, because I think we all we all have different stories about A, what got us into philosophy, and then B, what gets us going on the, the thinkers that really animate us. So um, that's a little tidbit from what got me going, I guess. I mean, exactly. I, I just think about, you know, who, who we're going to talk about today with Deleuze and, and then secondarily or co-primarily, you know, Leibniz, you know, you could, you could do a whole podcast on just something similar. They're kind of recounting like what Deleuze says he was one of the last of a generation to kind of be beaten over the head with the history of philosophy right so he's got his minor tradition as sometimes it's called I think of them sometimes in little triads obviously the one that jumps out the most is Nietzsche's Spinoza Bergson but you could do a couple of others obviously you could do what Leibniz Hume and maybe Maimon who knows right so and then Leibniz it just in correspondence with I guess that was just the mode of the time, right? In in what he's got hundred thousand plus pages of correspondence, most of which hasn't been translated or probably even all found. So you can think about all the thinkers that he's in concert with, not to pun, which is a late pun at the end of the book, but in any case, I'll let you I'll let you feel that well, one. I just kind of talked. I think there are actually two Leibnitzes in Deleuze. There's mm. early where he doesn't write a book, but it's important to Deleuze. And then there's the book he actually writes fairly late in his career. And it's a, a bit of a puzzle to me why he wrote that book later on, because he finished the cinema books. Yeah. And at the end of the cinema books, and even in the seminars where he's writing, while he's writing the seminar books, he mentions he's thinking about writing a book called What is Philosophy? And so he's already headed in that direction. But then Foucault dies. So once he finishes the cinema books, he does a year on Foucault. And that I understand because they were, I mean, they were friends, but they apparently didn't talk for the last eight years of Foucault's right. life. He was in Berkeley and all. But still, he, he wants to do something for his friend. And then at the end of that, he does a year on Leibniz. And it's unclear why. And then he finally gets to what is philosophy, but he never does seminars on what is philosophy. He retires after the Leibniz seminar and his publication of the Leibniz book. So it's almost as if he felt like he needed to go back to Leibniz to think about this question, what is philosophy, in the way he wanted to. But there's this early Leibniz, which is the one I found most interesting, to be honest, and then indeed comes out of, out of Maimon, and Maimon was a critic of Kant, and Deleuze says he thinks of Kant as an enemy, but there's one thing he likes about Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason, is at the end of the book he criticizes what he takes to be the three terminal points of metaphysics, which are the self, the world, and God. Those are what Kant says are transcendent illusions. And that part, I think Deleuze picks up on. 
Yeah. And um, he wants to think of if those are the terminal points of traditional metaphysics, how can we do a metaphysics that gets rid of those mm -hmm. points of reference? We don't talk about the world. We don't talk about God. We don't talk about the self. And that's a bit of a challenge. <laughs> and he gets mm -hmm. that critique in part from Maimon. And so I've always thought Deleuze, he's kind of a post-Kantian with that in mind, but he goes back and then reads people like Hume, mm -hmm. Spinoza, Leibniz, as if they were post-Kantian thinkers and says, what would their systems look like right. if you got rid of the self, the world, and God? Like in Spinoza, for instance, Deleuze mm -hmm. says, my Spinoza would have to be a Spinoza without substance, because what a substance, it's God or nature. Right. It's God or the world. So you'd have to have a Spinozism where Spinoza uh, substance drops out. And I think he does the same thing with Leibniz. But it's he's reading them, Hume, Spinoza, and Leibniz, who are pre-Kantian, from a very particular perspective right? You know, with this post-Kantian um, sort of project in mind. And then after Maimon, I think he reads Bergson and Nietzsche as well with these same questions underlying him. So early on, he has this very specific project. It took me a while to see that. But I think Maimon is is a more important figure than many of us realize, certainly than I realized, because he described his own project as a kind of coalition system of Hume, Spinoza, and Leibniz mm -hmm. as a way to think through a post-Kantian philosophy. And so I think Deleuze actually took his cue from Maimon in more ways than we <laughs> recognize and did his own rereading of those three thinkers. So early on, all this to say early on, I think that was the point of view that um, Deleuze was bringing to Leibniz. He was using him as a resource to think of this post-Kantian philosophy he was trying to develop. And then there's the second Leibniz that comes at the end of his career when he writes The Fold, which is aiming, I think, much more toward the book What is Philosophy? It's not that they're radically different, but um, you know, Deleuze uses thinkers, I think, in certain ways. And he was using him early on for one project and then used him later on for a second project. Just really quickly, I, I know that you said something in one of your your essays on Leibniz, which you can, which readers listening, you can find it in Dan's volume essays on Deleuze. It's got about what 18, 17, 18 essays, uh, all on sort of particular thinkers and themes. And you do spend a good bit of time on not just Leibniz, but the Kant the neo-Kantians, Hegel. And so a lot of this is kind of fleshed out there, this presence of Maimon. And one thing that stood out to me was this notion that some of the questions he poses to Hume, Spinoza, and Leibniz himself, you know, these, as you kind of say, to recuperate these uh, pre-Kantian thinkers or pre-critical thinkers and, and make them post-Kantian is these kind of Maimonian questions, uh, and you isolate two of them, one off the top of my head that kind of stands out and is it is always sort of forward, especially in, for example, the logic of sense, but also in deficit repetition is, you know, the conditions of possible experience is not enough for, for the kind of transcendental empiricism, let's say that Deleuze is going for, he's, he's wanting to isolate the sort of the genetic conditions of real experience so that or that these conditions have to be genetic because it's towards real experience you know so that made me think and have a new appreciation for um for maimon and i think that i'm also thinking about how the conversations we've had with simon duffy and a little bit with henry summers hall apologize who co-translated i think a new edition of one of uh, maimon's yes. works yeah that you know it because you're right, because you point out that even though Maimon doesn't, his name isn't cited as often as some of these other thinkers, his presence is still felt throughout 
at least these earlier works and perhaps later too with with the kind of questions or problems that Deleuze is posing yeah there's certain thinkers that are like that Maimon is one Raymond Gruyere is another mm -hmm. because he pops up in the later in the fold mm -hmm. uh, there's a little section on him and several footnotes and yet he's never mentioned in Deleuze's seminar, seminars hmm. that he's doing on Leibniz. Because I went back to them, I thought, well, he mentions him in the book, so maybe there's a long discussion of Raymond Riere in the seminars, and there's literally nothing, hmm. zero. So Damn. it's curious to me, and he says he's one of uh, Leibniz's greatest contemporary disciples. Right. Uh, and yet, it's just like he keeps him in his back pocket, <laughs> because <laughs> Riere is super important to him, I, I, I think, as a contemporary figure. And he mentions him in the book, but doesn't really, uh, I don't know, hand out that thing from his pocket to his students when he's uh, doing the seminar. But Maimon, I think, is similar, a, a thinker that's important to Deleuze, who doesn't get mentioned very often. Frankly, Heidegger is in the same boat. I don't think Deleuze is Heideggerian by no means. Right. But um, he was important to Deleuze, but he only really appears in a long footnote in Difference and Repetition. And apart from that, sort of a pervasive influence that's rarely mentioned. It's not necessarily a footnote. It almost feels like something that his advisors forced him to put in where it's like, it's like, I've here's heard that. Yeah. It, it almost feels like it. If you see how it's even how it's formatted, it's like, here's the, here's the stuff about ontico ontological difference or whatever. Right. It, it almost feels like something where somebody said to him, like, well, you're, if you're doing it on difference and don't you think you need to to have him in there? But in any case, yeah, I, I I could see that, and I think that what in in the fold Heidegger gets mentioned actually more than probably anywhere else. I would I would assume I, at least in the early chapters, right? There's there's a couple of mentions of the the Zweifalt, the, the exactly sort of, yeah the, yeah because the, it is a Heideggerian concept, and he uses the fold to talk about the ontological difference between being and beings, right? And he says that's kind of a, a fold. So it is a concept that it's not simply Heidegger, but it's certainly indebted in part to Heidegger for the concept of the fold. And just parenthetically, I've heard that as well, that one of Deleuze's advisors, I don't know who, maybe Jean Val or someone could sense in difference in repetition, the pervasive presence of Heidegger, even though the name wasn't mentioned. So I've heard that. It is in fact a footnote that Paul Patton pulled up into the text maybe. For oh, okay, okay, okay. When okay. he did the translation, but in the French, it's still a footnote. Uh, it's perfectly <laughs> legitimate because as you say, it's such a long and important footnote. But yeah, I've heard that he was at, because it was clearly there, but not mentioned that uh, someone asked him to add that footnote. That is funny that you can imagine Deleuze is like, well, I guess I'll put him in there, but you know, that's just going to be a big footnote. Like that'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll be, that'll be good enough. As long as it makes, makes, makes you happy. Yeah, he does mention the fold in there. And in a way he's already anticipating the Leibniz book on the fold when he's writing that footnote. So everything's I, connected. And I, well, I'd also say that throughout Difference of Repetition, this is why I went back to it, just thinking about the two Leibnizes, as you say. And we can obviously talk about the second um, one here in a minute. I was thinking about how the language that Deleuze works out, even one of the neologisms, he works out um, the sort of implication and explication of intensities, right, uh, from quantity to quality. He doesn't really talk as much about complication, even though he perhaps could have said more about it because I do think that he um, gives credence to someone like Nicholas de Cusa for sort of developing, you know, complicatio, which he mentions in the fold. But mm -hmm. then the, um, the neologism I think about is the perplication of ideas, right? And how they, they sort of interact and, and how we, you know, a problem perplexes the soul. So this language of, of folding, even if it's in the Latinate, if you will, it's still sort of there and does a lot of work for him and he makes a lot out of it. 
Yeah, in a way, I think he uses that concept to go against the notion of substance or even atomism. You know, the idea, like if you divide matter, so to take one example, like at some point you'll get down to a thing, a substance, mm -hmm. like an atom. Deleuze's idea is, no, when you get down to the basic constituents of matter or anything else, it's not substance, it's not atom, it's an inflection, it's a fold, right. which leads to his metaphysics of uh, multiplicities and so forth. So I think there's a reason why he chooses that as a fundamental concept, but it's really not thematized, it's true. It's As I say, it's hinted at in difference and repetition, but it's not really thematized until he writes that um that book on Leibniz. So that might be one other reason why he wanted to devote a year of his seminar to Leibniz. There were still things he wanted to work out there that hadn't been clarified. You know, Husserl said this at some point with regard to philosophers. There's concepts philosophers have that are thematized explicitly mm -hmm. and then others that are operative. You know, they're at work there, but it's not necessarily a concept that the philosopher is, is highlighting and explicitly discussing. And I think for a long time, the fold was an operative concept for Deleuze, and he wanted to make it thematic by writing the, the book on Leibniz. I like that distinction between the, the two types of concepts. It reminds me a little bit about, it's not the same, but it's, it reminds me of the subjective presuppositions, objective presuppositions, although it's, it's more maybe manifest and latent. But in any case, I totally forgot that Obviously, the word fold is at the root of multiplicity. So that's just that's just something that it's hidden in a way that that I don't hear it even, you know, in in the word multiple. Yeah, that, it's true. The English word for multiplicity, of course, is manifold, right. which is makes it obvious. And and, and sometimes I, I think it's unfortunate that multiplicity has been trans the French multiplicité has been translated as multiplicity in English. Because it and, does really, it's referring to the mathematical theory of manifolds. Right. which lies at the basis you know, of theory of relativity and such. And that tends to get lost in the translation of multi the term as multiplicity, because then it seems like it's tied to the idea of the multiple, which it is in some ways, but it loses its connection to the mathematical theory of manifolds, which of course Simon Duffy has done uh, yes. a lot of work on. But it just sometimes I wish I wish we had kept the, you know, the word manifold because it would have made clear the relation to the fold and made clear the mathematical connections more than the term multiplicity does. It's as though to translate it as multiplicity is to, is to try to keep his lineage to Bergson, which, you know, I think is supposed is to be important nonetheless. Yes. In French, you don't have to make that decision, though, right? You don't have to choose between Bergson and, and Riemann or something like this. And you're right that multiplicity might align him with set theory more so than than one would but in any case that's a good point that you bring out but you're right that manifold would have that would since that's one of the things he's known for quote unquote multiplicity and and it becoming a substantive that would already sort of show that he's throughout his career at least since the 60s been thinking about as you say about folds and folding and that helps to, to bridge a continuity between the two Leibniz's, because I do think that in difference of repetition, you know, he is obviously he he says nice things about Leibniz and he is doing and he is taking up Leibniz in certain ways, but he's also he's also critiquing him and even sort of juxtaposing him as Hegel, you know, if Hegel has the infinitely large and Leibniz has the infinitely small and they sort of both push representation to the or orgiastic and to the infinite, there's still something that he finds you're not taking the you're kind of like loading the dice if you will of the dice throw by subordinating 
what you're supporting infinite represent even if you make representation infinite you're still subordinate to the principle of identity and so you're so different still does not yet have an affirmative concept of its own for something like this yeah i mean that's what i think the early leibniz is is about you know hippolyte has this book called logic and existence it's a book on hegel but the list picks up on that and asks like how we can use logic to you know, understand existence. It's kind of an existentialism, but using logic. And from his point of view, Leibniz tries to extend the principle of identity into understanding existence. That's what mm -hmm. he thinks Leibniz is up to. You know, there are three general principles in logic. The principle of identity, A is A. The principle of non-contradiction, A is not not A. And then the principle of excluded middle, either A or not A, but not mm -hmm. both. Like those are just sort of basic logical principles. And it was kind of, it's a place where he goes through the history of philosophy. And I tried to write up, explore this at one point. Leibniz is the one who uses the principle of identity. Hegel comes along and makes contradiction the focus of his philosophy. And then the people we call existentialists, like Pascal, Kierkegaard, Sartre, mm -hmm use the excluded middle because it's either A or not A or not both. It's essentially a principle of choice. So you become, for Sartre, what you are in existence by choosing, <laughs> and Kierkegaard as well. And in making a choice, you become what you are. So he sees these three episodes in the history of philosophy to take these three basic principles of logic, identity, non-contradiction, the excluded middle, and see if you can take a logical principle and interpret existence using those logical principles. And to some degree, he's he's admiring of all of them and thinks there's a lot of, um, <laughs> one got a lot of traction in those three projects. But in the end, I think what Deleuze is trying to do in laying those out is say, but it's not ever quite going to help us understand what existence is, because what we need are not variations on the principle of identity, but to get to something that he thinks all three of these projects are pointing to, which is a principle of difference. So that's why he writes difference right. in repetition and goes through these readings of philosophy to say they're getting at something that philosophy is trying to get at, but it's not quite going to get there if it's using these principles of logic. That's another way of saying what I think he's up to in these early writings hovering around difference in repetition and what makes him extraordinarily interested in Leibniz because Leibniz more than any of the other pre-Kantians I think is useful for Deleuze's purposes mm. because he does think he produces a technique for humans to understand what the principle of difference is and that's precisely calculus yep like he invents yeah. calculus but in Deleuze's reading it's precisely it's not just a mathematical technique it's a metaphysical technique yeah yeah you need to have a metaphysics of difference and calculus is a way of, of getting at that so even though on the one hand Leibniz has his foot in the past and he's tied to the principle of identity, there's another side of Leibniz that is creating these radically new techniques like calculus that is helping us think through what the nature of difference is. So even though he's a pre-Kantian, and even though he's tied to the principle of identity and the principle of sufficient reason and the law of continuity and the identity of indiscernibles and all these things that he develops, there's something about Leibniz that is taking a, a big step into the future. And that's what Deleuze tries to pick up on and develop in his own manner. You have a beautiful way of putting this, and I want to just, I'll recede from the conversation in just a second. I know we got a lot to talk about and, and don't want to exclude my, my co-host, who's always very patient with me because <laughs> I get excited <laughs> and I keep talking. But you say, I pulled out a quote from your, your essay on Leibniz and the calculus, where you say the role of the calculus, you describe it as, quote, an artifice that is capable of undertaking a well-founded approximation 
of what happens in God's understanding. And I thought that that was a really nice way of putting it, even if here God is kind of become totally different. And maybe we could say we can talk about that soon with the, the eternal return and kind of the affirmation of divergent series or whatnot. But I like this idea right about, you know, for Leibniz, if sort of the infinite, if the infinite series in analysis to, you know, for each individual to have a concept can be at least ideally present or take place in, in God's understanding. It's the calculus that kind of gives us this this machine for, for um, you know, via the differential relation to sort of grasp this or, or to produce this on a certain level. Yeah, because Leibniz is kind of a crazy philosopher. I mean, his gambit <laughs> with sufficient reason, you know, say, look, in mathematics, you can define a triangle as a figure that has three angles. That's what triangle means. So there's an identity there. A triangle is a figure with three angles. It's another step to say a triangle is a figure with three sides, because then you have to show having three angles can be deduced, three sides can be deduced from having three angles. But what Leibniz does is to try to say that also works in existence and not just mm. in mathematics and essences. So if Caesar crossed the Rubicon at some point, you have to be, show that you can deduce from Caesar's concept the fact that Caesar crossed the Rubicon. And like it's an amazingly crazy thing to say that you can deduce from my concept what I'm about to say to you right now, because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what he's up to, that we give the sufficient reason of what I'm about to say now. And yet he tries to show that. The reason it becomes complicated, because if you want to show that crossing the Rubicon is contained in Caesar's concept, you have to show also that all the things that are connected with crossing the Rubicon are also in Caesar's concept, the establishment of the Roman Empire, and later on, you know, the birth of Jesus and redemption. So, you know, Leibniz is a Christian and other, everything is connected causally. So to show that crossing the Rubicon is, con is contained in Caesar's concept, you in the end have to show that the entirety of the universe is contained in Caesar's concept. So in order to understand the concept of Caesar, you have to do an analysis that in the end is infinite you know, mm, and yeah. show how crossing the Rubicon and Jesus' birth and everything else is part of Caesar's concept. And, you know, it's really an extraordinarily crazy philosophical undertaking, which is why it seems like only God could undertake that kind of infinite analysis. But in the end, that's what Leibniz does. He says, well, no, we can at least get a well-founded approximation in, into that kind of infinite analysis. And I have a technique for that, and it, it's going to be calculus. And it's why, to this day, any engineer who is doing some real problem in the world does not use logic <laughs> to figure out how to, you know, the stress of a bridge or, you know, whatever problem they're working on, they use calculus and not logic. And that's essentially what Deleuze is saying. A lot of philosophers were trying to use the principles of logic to understand the nature of existence. And mm -hmm. it turned out, no, it's an inadequate symbolism to understand existence. The kind of symbolism you need is calculus. And that's borne out today. Every law of nature that we know now is expressed in differential equations and not in logic. And so logic becomes the symbolism that you need to understand the nature of existence and not the symbolism of traditional logic. That's the kind of move he's making and that he sees Leibniz doing in his own way. So that's why he says God understands nature, but how do we come to understand nature and existence in itself? Well, here's a technique. It's calculus. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it works. And the entire scientific revolution, you could say, is based on this new symbolism we have for understanding the nature of things and how things actually operate in existence.
So that's the kind of general move Deleuze is making. But then he says, well, we need a whole new metaphysics then. We need right. a metaphysics based on the calculus. And he says that metaphysics is a metaphysics of difference mm-hmm. because when you analyze how calculus works, it's using a principle of difference and not a principle of identity. In short, <laughs> no, that's a lot. That's a mouthful in, in a few sentences. Coop, you may remember this better than me, and, and Dan, you might remember it. Was it Princeton that that basically announced it was getting rid of the the logic requirement for philosophy uh, undergrads, and there was this whole <laughs> kind of stink about it. And uh, I don't remember which university it was that that suggested that, but I, I would say maybe they could replace the logic course with a uh, calculus course, right? We're doing the same thing at Purdue. We've made it excellent optional to do the logic requirement if you can show that you have have other sort of methodological things that would be better for the project you're working on, then logic is no longer a requirement. I'd be all for that. I do think math and calculus would be Mm -hmm. much more important for philosophers than logic, because logic helps you analyze statements like sentences. Right. Essentially, you start with an axiom, but an axiom is a statement, whether in normal English or any language or in a formalized language, but it takes as its model language. And calculus is doing something quite different. And I think it's really you know, the motivating symbolism of, well, if you're, if Purdue's an engineering school, every engineer at Purdue has to take calculus classes right. for good reason, but they don't have to take logic classes. And for good reason, again, so, <laughs> Yeah, we philosophers are still back in logic and there's nothing, it's not a critique of logic at all. It's, it's hugely important to, uh, for philosophy and the history of philosophy, but there's a reason why calculus has become the dominant symbolism now in mathematics and even outside of mathematics. And I think Deleuze saw that early on, and he tried to give, you know, as he said, what do philosophers do? He goes, I'm not a mathematician. That, that work has been done. But what I try to do as a philosopher, and he gets this from Bergson, Ber- philosophers should kind of construct the metaphysics that is commensurate with contemporary science and contemporary mathematics. And there's an old metaphysics that Kant was criticizing that was tied to these terminal points of the self and the world of God. But there's now a new metaphysic that's required based in part on calculus, but lots of other things. And Deleuze is trying to produce that metaphysics that is commensurate with these new developments in science and these new develop- developments in mathematics. And that's a project that never ends. So it's not as if Deleuze's metaphysics is uh, the last word on these things, but I think he took a long step, uh, more than most philosophers, in in trying to sketch out what such, such a metaphysics uh, could be and should be and needs to be. Coop, one of the things that jumped out to me, Coop, was uh, when we were talking about the calculus and God's understanding in this infinite analysis and sort of the the cosmos being contained in the in the concept of Caesar. It did sound a very much like some of the things we've talked about together with um, with Maudib and and sort of the the prescience and and all of that that's involved in the the sort of metaphysics of Dune. I guess it does go, get into the incompossibility i don't know if it'd be maybe a good starting point to just discuss incompossibility broadly because mm-hmm. i think it, it was even i think more nuanced that i had kind of assumed so i don't know if either one of you want to or if you both want to kind of work through just incompossibility because i think that would go towards that aspect of the discussion yeah a little bit yeah i can say a word about that because that's a concept leibniz invents and he invents mm-hmm. it because he needs it you know for this whole project he's undertaking, because it's very different than the possible and the impossible. So the possible and the impossible has to do with, you know, mathematics and essences. A circle that is a square is an impossibility. A circle cannot be a square. It's it's not possible. It's impossible. And yet Caesar crossing the Rubicon is not an impossibility. He could have not crossed the Rubicon, but he happened to cross the Rubicon 
So Leibniz needs to come up with a concept to say how things that are not necessarily impossible relate to each other. And so he says the difference between Caesar crossing the Rubicon and Caesar, wait, Caesar crossing the Rubicon and not crossing the Rubicon, it's not impossible, impossible, but it's incompossible. In other words, the world where Caesar decided not to cross the Rubicon is incompossible with this world where he actually mm -hmm. did cross the Rubicon. And it leads to Leibniz's most famous doctrine, which is that God chose this world because it's the best of all possible worlds. You right. know, the world where Caesar crossed the Rubicon is the best of all possible worlds, but there are other possible worlds where maybe he didn't cross the Rubicon. And there, in fact, there's an infinity of worlds out there where different things happen. Deleuze's interpretation of that for Leibniz is that it's simply a way of retaining and defending the old concept of truth. Interesting. Because if something is true, it has to be true in all times and in all places. That, right. That's what it means to be true. And yet, if it's possible that Leibniz could have not crossed the Rubicon, well, then what does that do the notion of, of truth? Because then it introduces this notion of time. Until he crosses the Rubicon, is it true that he's going to cross the Rubicon? Or is it true that he's not going to cross the Rubicon? We don't know. We have to wait till experience. It's the problem of contingent futures, which Aristotle talks about. Will there be a naval battle tomorrow or will right. there not be? Which is a question of putting time into truth. You know, The minute you tie truth to time, well, you get into a lot of problems because truth is supposed to be non-temporal. So that's Leibniz's solution. That's why you hear a lot of philosophers now talking about something is true in all possible worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if you if you keep it in this world, well, you have all these problems. But if it's true in all possible worlds, well, then you can still have this old notion of truth, where true the true is true at all times and in all places. And then you have to add in all possible worlds. It's just a, a way of retaining the old notion of truth. What Deleuze is going to do with the notion of truth is to introduce the notion of time into the concept of truth and saying truth is no longer something eternal. It's something temporal. In other words, there's a becoming to concepts. And the minute you introduce the notion of time into truth, well, you no longer have the traditional notion of truth. And Deleuze eventually, so this is getting into another topic, but I think mm -hmm. it's directly related to Leibniz. He's going to replace the notion of truth with something he's going to call the powers of the false, where falsity is no longer, no longer means something that is it's not true. There's a positivity to falsity, but it's a power that moves from one statement to another, but it's not necessarily true in all times and in all places. I mean, an example would be in science. We used to think that the sun was the center of the universe, mm -hmm. and now maybe we think something different. So we used to think that, but now we know that's not the case, which means what we used to think was false, but now we, we think something differently. Deleuze is just going to take that and tweak it and say, in fact, why not consider all our statements as falsities? That doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're not true, but science progresses from moving from one falsity, which is not necessarily something false, to another falsity. And it's a series of, of statements that have the positivity, the power of the false. So it, it's a way of, I mean, to get back to where this question started, I'm not expressing myself maybe clearly, but it's a way of taking incompossibility and saying incompossibilities do not refer to other possible worlds. They all belong to one world. They belong to this world. This world is constructed out of incompossibilities, bifurcations, discordance. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we can't save it by, you know, sending out those incompossible things to other worlds. This world is not a pre-established harmony. Yes. It's a world radically discordant, radically incompossible, where bifurcations are taking place 
all the time. It's another way of saying it's the production of the new. That too is another way in which he takes Leibniz and says, well, what would it mean to think through Leibniz in the modern period? Right. You can't take incompossibilities and send them out to other worlds. They actually belong to this world and it gives us a radical new image of what this world is. And he likes to use a term from James Joyce, instead of the world, he calls it the chaosmos, right. which is a portmanteau world of the cosmos and chaos put together. But that's a word he adopts from Joyce to try to say what the world looks like, what the universe looks like from this radically post-Kantian viewpoint where Leibniz becomes a post-Kantian thinker. <laughs> and um, we think of this world as filled with chaos and impossibilities and bifurcations. We read one of Mayasu's works i forget it was something like dealing with chaos in the title but it was i mean after, one thing after that, finitude would no we didn't read after finitude we read oh, the, something uh, else it was on contingency um metaphysics yeah I, th- I was just going to say that i think the universality or the universal the sole universal of contingency goes to incompossibility but maybe that's a misunderstanding because it sounds like maybe if there's one world, there's not these other worlds where we send off these other alternative possibilities. Does that make sense? Is that a, yeah, <laughs> a I, I think question to ask? I would say, bring uh, up? I would say before throwing it back to Dan, I mean, like, I think that that's very much at play in what Mayasu is going on about with hyper chaos. He's extending that to even the laws of the universe. And I think that perhaps we could read hyper chaos and the contingency of the, the laws of nature or whatever you want to call it the law what we take as the laws of science that gets kind of to what dan was talking about yeah with the powers okay, of I, thought the false. So. I thought so because um yeah it's uh, it kind of blew my mind to think because it was a little bit counterintuitive to think that well if everything is contingent then not everything is possible everything's contingent but contingency not but it's it definitely is kind of it has the ring of the powers of the false to it in the way that dan was laying it out and right okay um I think you're very much spot on with with that. I don't know if Dan, you have or had had an interest in in Mayasu and Afterfinitude and this this notion of hyper chaos, but I do think it's it's very much in line with what you've spoken about with impossibility. Even if that's not the topic of of Mayasu's work, I think it very much jives with what you said. No, I agree. I liked uh, Mayasu quite a bit, and I think Deleuze um, sort of even before the fact was an anti correlationist, I and mean, mm-hmm. that's part of his. Um, critique of Kant and why he too considered Kant as an enemy. And I do think he wouldn't be unhappy with that phrase, the necessity of contingency, because, um, you know, another way of talking about difference is the new. And so to say that being is difference is to say that being is the constant production of, of the new. There's one place in the Leibniz work book where he contrasts uh, two phrases to understand Leibniz philosophy. One is everything is singular. And right. everything is regular. <laughs> and it's really great because I, I like that because you can really look at um, everything from those two points of view. I mean, you can say everything is regular because, well, you guys do podcasts and now here you're doing another podcast. So it's nothing new under the sun. This is what you do and it's you're, you're good at it and people listen. And so that's regular. And yet all those podcasts are singular because you know we've talked before and yet this is a new conversation and mm-hmm. and everything is new and everything is singular and that's sort of Deleuze's metaphysics in a nutshell he thinks at bottom everything is singular like everything every event every person every individual everything that takes place is radically new but it quickly becomes regularized and normalized for lots of reasons 
and that's a way of talking about the necessity of contingency. Everything that mm. takes place is radically contingent and it's necessarily so. So I do think there are lines of convergence between Mayasu and Deleuze. I think I would say Deleuze Hardy was responding to after finitude because that's <laughs> after Kant. Kant is the thinker of constitutive finitude and before before the fact, even before Mayasu wrote that book. But um, that's not a critique of the book. I think he lays out a number of essential critiques in after finitude. I like this asterisk that Deleuze places on this notion of Leibniz's notion of the best of all possible worlds. It's the most likely, the most likely sort of outcome of rolling of the dice, let's say. Mm. I think that just puts a whole different spin on quote unquote best of all possible worlds being sort of the best world that is possible given contingency or like this singular, this particular you know, whatever singularity that we're crossing through or series of singularities that we're crossing mm -hmm. through via time, et cetera. How does it go? It's the one with the maximum difference, something like this, right? It's, it, I guess that yeah, the maximum, the best of all possible worlds is the world that has the maximum continuity right? Uh, okay. with the maximum of difference. So continuity is what links, you know, the crossing of the Rubicon with the establishment of the Roman Empire. So there's a continuity. This world for Leibniz is defined by its continuity. But mm -hmm. why this particular kind of continuity? Because it's the maximum of difference. That's his criterion of why, at least in Deleuze's interpretation, why this is the best of all possible worlds. And yet why Voltaire and a lot of the 18th century ridiculed Leibniz is because, well, you can't actually see that unless you're God. So Voltaire, right. <laughs> you know, writes his book Candide, and Candide has all these awful things happen, happen to him. He loses all his money, he gets shipwrecked, he gets horrible diseases. And there's a professor next to him who is actually supposed to be, you know, the kind of Leibniz figure, Dr. Pangloss, saying, don't worry, Candide, this is the best of all possible worlds. You just can't see it. So all these horrible things are happening to you, but uh, just be reassured that <laughs> from the divine point of view, this is the best of all possible worlds. So right. that's why Leibniz wound up getting ridiculed during the 18th century, because it seemed a very optimistic point of view on the world. And what really brought down, you know, this Leibnizian optimism on the world was the um, famous earthquake that took place in Lisbon. I forget the year, but um, there was an earthquake and then shortly there and the city caught on fire shortly thereafter, a massive tsunami hit Lisbon. A lot of people had okay. worked to get away from the fire. So it was a massive loss of life. Disasters happen all the time, but there's something about that disaster that really hit the intellectual you know, life of Europe. I and see. It really was the event that took away the idea that there's a rationality to this world, that God is in charge, because that's really what got people saying, well, if God can allow this to happen, you know, then what? And so it was kind of the death knell that earthquake and tsunami to the kind of optimism that Leibniz was trying to... Um, put forward in his uh, in his book, uh, Theodicy. And frankly, I think something similar happened in the 20th century with, um, you know, World War II and Auschwitz mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Hiroshima. It was the same thing with regard to human reason. You know, the Portugal earthquake said, um, called into question divine rationality and optimism. And I think those 20th century events called into question you know, human rationality and any optimism about that. So it's funny how in history, there tend to be those kind of events that... Um, precipitate lots of philosophical reflection and that Lisbon earthquake was one of them and it had a direct a direct impact on how Leibniz wound up being received as a philosopher now I know it's not published but I think this is why Mayasu has and I'm obviously being very schematic he's got the the divine in existence that's circulated around somewhat I know Graham Harmon's 
been able to translate excerpts from it. But one of the really, again, I'm just sketching out very, you know, Meisu kind of says, well, there is this notion because the problem of evil has kind of always been and it shows up in the fold it shows up in spinoza's letters with blydenberg right this problem of evil has is, is kind of always been around in the history of philosophy and so this a notion that there is a god who is not yet who like does not yet exist to be the author of these evils as though to go to your point about dealing with um this pushback about where to place the blame, let's say, in a simple sense. That's sort of a whole other topic. I, I do think this is just a kind of schematic question before getting just to flesh out more of the incompossibility and to bring in some of the, the notion of the dice throw, which I think is very important for sort of how incompossibility turns into this affirmation of eternal return, especially in the conclusion of different repetition. But it's this notion, is the the example Caesar crossing the Rubicon, is this Leibniz's or is this Deleuze's? Because the famous phrase is the die is cast, you know, alia yacta est. And so I, I think that that's kind of, that was something that just kind of uh, was floating beneath the surface, I think, because, you know, Deleuze brings up, obviously in different repetition, but here again in the fold, Meyer man uh, Nietzsche and this notion of of a casting of of the dice, of a throw of the dice. So do you happen to know if this is Leibniz's uh, own example? The Rubicon is, uh, it's definitely okay. a repeated example. The dice throw is, is very Deleuzean, and there's, um, I think the best text on that is in Logic of Sense. Yes, the ideal this, game, yeah. Exactly, and, uh, you know, he's thinking about its game theory, you know, decision theory. Uh, right, it right. Place in Logic, but he's taking it to a, a different level, and, and essentially he's trying to identify, like, how do you think of a game that expresses the entirety of chance at every right throw of the dice because the way games work you have rules <laughs> and then you know within that you you do certain things and chance plays a certain role but only in the context of certain pre-established rules it's like the pre-established harmony and so Deleuze develops this notion of an ideal play so it's not a game you could ever play in reality because right. we always have to play with rules that's the very idea of what a game is but he he tries to push the notion of a game a divine game an ideal game to the point where all of chance is at play in every throw of the dice so it's a kind of game that can take place only in thought yeah, not yeah. in actuality it's quite interesting where he takes this notion of game theory and pushes it to his own he would say kind of imminent conclusion where you don't have pre-existing rules, no pre-established harmony for how the game is going to be played, but uh, get to the point where you can take game theory and tie it completely to the notion of chance or chaos or the production of the new at every moment. It's a very interesting kind of sub-trajectory in, in Deleuze's thought. I want to go back and say one quick yeah. thing about the problem of evil, though. Because yeah. I find that an interesting problem because it's almost always attached to the notion of God. But it's tied to the notion of God because we define the notion of God as necessarily being all good. The minute you say God is only goodness, well, then, of course, you have a problem of evil because there's evil in the world and God is the creator, but he's only supposed to be good. But it's almost like saying if God is all yellow, then, you know, we'd have the problem of blue. <laughs> uh, God does not need to be all good. That's simply something that's posited. When you look at the Roman gods, Klesowski writes about this quite a bit. The gods are not deemed to be all good. Yeah. And so there's yeah. a whole tradition that has largely disappeared. I mean, we don't even have the text anymore because of Augustine, frankly. He criticized this stuff, and so the Christians <laughs> came and just destroyed it. Right. It's called theatrical theology. He describes it, but where the gods indeed 
were evil as much as they were good, but they were kind of omni-evil. <laughs> it's right. not omnipotent or omniscient. They were omni-evil. So if whatever vices they had, they would be amplified in the gods. And then in Rome, there was a thing called theatrical theology where they would have theater pieces that would act out these omni-vices of the gods on the stage. And people would pay to see them. And, you know, from the few accounts that remain, <laughs> they were rather orgiastic and mm -hmm. things that you would not normally see on stage, but the Romans flocked to see them. And Augustine, as you can imagine, criticized these to the nth degree, to the point where we have very few texts left on, on, on what these events look like. But it's just to make the point, even the Romans had the idea that the gods were not necessarily good. They also embodied evil. And the, right. so they didn't have the same way of thinking about the problem of evil. That comes about the minute you posit the idea that generally, I think, comes from Plato, like in the third book of the Republic, that God can be only good. And if that's mm. the case, obviously, an evil creation then becomes a problem for that idea of God being good. But it's generated by a certain conception of God. It's not to say there's not evil, but it's it's very different when you think about evil in relation to humans and not simply a problem with regard to God. It becomes a problem of pain and suffering. And you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a way where, you know, in a way, Nietzsche's philosophy begins with that question, but it's quite different from the problem of evil when it's associated with the idea of a good God. Just want to throw that in parenthetically. This is really important because he does have that moment where he kind of, this is kind of anticipating, I think, what is philosophy, where he, this comes up too in the Abbasidere, where he's identifying the empiricists with these inquisitors. They're going to inquisit matter and an empirical phenomenon. And with Kant, you know, they're, the conceptual persona is kind of the judge or the legislator of, you know, maybe the moral law or something like this. Whereas with Leibniz, it's the attorney. It's like the lawyer who is, who, who is at pains to justify this optimism that we just spoke about devil's this, advocate literally yeah, the, I just I mean, right? <laughs> the, the advocate of the advocate of the good god of the non-deceiving god which i think is part of the inheritance obviously from not just from plato but but from descartes who who obviously uh, what is it what's the list say in the fold that um you know leibniz is does it quite agree or, or believe descartes did enough to argue for a non-deceiving God, even with <laughs> the evil genius thought experiment or whatever. Like Leibniz has to go further to sort of justify this, this notion of the best of all possible worlds. And I think that that's what becomes really interesting too when um, something kind of you said earlier about the powers of the false, you know, it made me think too that this is this use of Nietzsche, use of Leibniz together is one of the ways to overturn Platonism because what do you do? You kind of give free reign to the simulacra to a certain extent. You no longer have a model copy or or the the good God to either look over the deeds of the world and to blame for evil or the good even, or to make all the series converge, right? Like once God is out of the play, then then the eternal return is uh, can kind of be affirmed or this world, right, the chaosmos, as you said, it can be affirmed rather than some other possible worlds where God doesn't allow Lisbon to be destroyed twice over or something like this. Now that you say that, I think I've confused my chronology because I think the Lisbon, Lisbon earthquake actually happened before Leibniz wrote the Odyssey. And indeed, okay, the okay. Odyssey, as you say, he's like a lawyer after this disaster, bringing God to court and saying, justify yourself. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, uh, right, right. 
why did you allow this to happen? Why can you allow this to happen? Why should we believe in you if this is the sort of thing you do? And really, theodicy is trying to justify God in the face of these kind of disasters. And that's his response. Well, it's the best of all possible worlds, but we can't see all the continuity in this world. We only see the bad things in our little point of view, our perspective on the world, but we don't see the whole picture. And we have to trust that God sees that whole picture. But it's true Then he introduces a new concept. It seems like just a matter of words, but it's not the no notion of the good, which is a Platonic concept, which implies two worlds, a sensible world down here, but then an intelligible world up outside of the cave it's the sun and, and the good is the principle lying be above all that he introduces not the notion of the good but the notion of the best it's the mm -hmm. best of all possible yeah. worlds and that's a slightly different uh twist and a slightly different take that rests on different philosophical bases so he's already taking a step away from platonism probably the person you know frankly who inverts it most uh explicitly is the marquis de sade who deleuze writes on in his book on masochism i mean we right. think of de sade as a kind of libertine sexual writer but really, at bottom, he is asking, what if the principle of evil is the highest principle and not the principle of good? So he's really anti-Platonic in that way. And his writings are really doing a kind of thought experiment on what that would look like. And I think that's one reason why the Marquis de Sade, he was taken seriously and still is in France as a philosopher. So many people wrote on him. Sartre wrote on him. Simone de Beauvoir. Mm -hmm. Lacan. Writes on Lacan. Writes, yeah. Lacan writes on him. Uh, <laughs> Kant of Exod. Yep. Um, and Even Nick reason, Land. <laughs> oh, well, Nick see. Land, yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. But I think that's why, you know, there's a philosophical project at work in Exod that's related to everything we're talking about that um, is, is quite important. Now, Taylor brought up um, Muad'Dib, so from the Dune series, which I have uh, been browbeating him over the head with. <laughs> What's really interesting is the figure, and I don't know how much familiarity you have, so I'll just go into a little bit about this to give you a little bit of context. So obviously, sci-fi novel set vastly in the future. Thinking machines have been outlawed. So to pick up the slack, so to speak, they effectively, through discipline and training, and as well as through drugs, you know, they have people that do computation that are called mentats. So actually, like they'll do organic computation. They have a whole training program. There's another sect of people that have hyper awareness down to their cellular chemistry, etc. So they have like this incredible awareness ability to control their pH balance, basically transmute poison, do all of these things at the very like cellular chemical level, etc. In addition, they have this sort of um, genetic program of breeding and so forth to bring about this being who can see both the all of the genetic history from the beginning of time through the male and female ancestry down to the cellular memory, the recollection down to the actual little monadic cells combined with oracular vision of the future. Due to, I think, incompossibility and this sort of notion of the most likely of all worlds, perhaps, he tries to sort of walk this tightrope. Effectively, he's going to lose his spouse. And no matter what happens, once he's crossed through a certain nexus of time there is no way in which he can save his beloved uh the, he has the to, rubicon right he crosses yeah the sort of, exactly once that rubicon has been crossed he's locked into no matter what no matter which sort of path he walks or crosses through whatever decision he makes his wife is going to die no matter what so then he effective you can see that moment coming like if i go past this point then everything is lost right exactly and so he describes it as sort of you start out with a super wide vision, but as you progress through time, it goes through a single point. 
effectively. Mm-hmm. And then that point, I think, expand, you know, every point is basically expanding into infinity. I'm a, being a bit loose there. But I guess the key notion is that no matter what, he is basically trying to find the least bad outcome for his family, for his wife, the future in which she suffers the least once he's crossed this point that she's for sure going to die. So he sees these very horrible outcomes and tries to make the time stream move into the one particular future where I guess she dies, but there's no prolonged suffering or any of these other horrible outcomes, etc., which I think is super interesting relative to both the idea of contingency, as Maya Sue describes it, but also incompossibility, etc. So anyways, I just wanted to use that as maybe a way to kind of think about how this would actually, I don't know, would work in a sort of a narrative. So <laughs> not Not necessarily a question, but... I've been happening to be reading that book this week, and so I've been thinking about that quite a bit. Well, it's quite interesting to hear. I, you know, that's the end of Leibniz's Theodicy is kind of early version of these kinds of stories of uh-huh. bifurcations, like where people make choices and then their future goes in this direction. But if they'd made a different choice back here, their future would have gone in another direction. And he has an image of how that works. Um, I forget the name of the character he's talking about. It's a Roman person. But it's like a, a pyramid and of all it's to the best of all possible worlds. And, you know, the best world is going to be at the top of the pyramid and other worlds, you know, going down are worlds where they've made these other choices. And I don't know how it would work if you go past a certain point and then your your spouse is definitively lost. But what's interesting in Leibniz is that there's no there's no worst of all possible worlds. Interesting. You know, the pyramid has a best. It has a top. You know, it has a summit. The base just goes off in infinity in all mm-hmm. in all directions, and that's quite interesting too. That's why the best functions as a principle for him rather than the good. But the other thing that occurred to me, Cooper, as you were describing this, is the intimate link then between this whole notion of incompossibility and the idea of possible worlds, and the notion of time. The problem of time, as I see it, is really what generates Leibniz's notion of incompossibility. It's saying that the future is open, it's contingent. Caesar could have not crossed the Rubicon. Adam could have not sinned. That's a question of time. It's a question of freedom, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which is tied to time. And yet, what are you going to do once those things happen? You know, the possibilities that are not realized, he just delegates to other possible worlds. But that's a way of dealing with time that Deleuze doesn't want to follow. <laughs> and uh, it'd be a whole other session, I think, to talk about Deleuze's notion of time that he wants to propose there because for yeah. him, time is not succession. Time is not linear. We don't get to a point where we have to make a choice. And you know, time for him is really coexistence. And that's a totally anti-intuitive notion right. of time that yeah. all these possibilities or virtualities actually coexist. And that is a much more adequate notion of time than the idea of succession in a timeline. Move right. Yeah, exactly. To the, to the that, future. That's a really good point. I was even thinking back to what is philosophy, because this goes a little bit to, he mentions how Kant sort of does his own, what is it, his own cogito by adding in time. Yeah, right. And time. That's Deleuze's point. Which makes so much sense because it's, then again, I guess it kind of throws me off because of that sort of at least makes me immediately go to a linear notion. And I think just to go back to the Dune thing, I think that Herbert, even though he may try to be, you know, this is a lot of like, sort of artifice, I think, or like aesthetic 
steps that he tries to add to give the work some type of like philosophical grounding, but he's not really necessarily using these concepts in a strictly philosophical way. But gosh, I lost my train of thought. It's the, it's the powers of the false then. I mean, that's what science, even difference repetition was supposed to be half science fiction, half detective novel. So there, there's <laughs> yeah. no, you don't have to make a justification that, yes, he may not be strictly rigorous or something by by following it out, but there there is some kind of thought experiment going on. And I know that you sent me this quote, particularly Coop, were you thinking yeah. about this with relation to? Yeah. If you both don't mind, I'd like to perhaps read this and then maybe see where we can perhaps jump off from this, because I thought this just really went to this kind of idea, felt a lot of resonance with the idea of Mahdi, the God Emperor, etc. Can a superior intelligence capable of knowing all antecedents predict the act with an absolute necessity? In Leibniz, this is the situation of the God reader who can read in each individual what is happening everywhere and even what has happened and what will happen. Who reads the future in the past because he can unfold all its folds, which open perceptibly only within time. The present seems to lose its privilege here, and determinism seems to be reintroduced as predestination. But in what sense? Is it because God knows everything in advance? Is it not because he is always and everywhere? In fact, the first hypothesis is very ambiguous. Either God knows everything only about antecedents, and we return to the question, can he predict or foresee the act, or he knows everything absolutely, and we return to the second hypothesis. Now, to say that God is always and everywhere is to say, strictly speaking, that he passes through all states of the monad, no matter how small they may be, in such a way that he coincides with the monad at the moment of the action without any postponement. Okay, well, that's a mouthful. <laughs> um, so early on, I think what he's talking about there is Laplace's demon. Uh, that's a famous thought experiment by Laplace, which right, said okay. exactly that. If someone knew all the states of the past, they could predict exactly what was going to take place in the future. So the causal structure of the world, if we knew it entirely in the past, we could predict everything uh, in the future. That's somewhat Leibnizian when he says we should be able to demonstrate that in, from the concept of Caesar that he's going to cross the Rubicon. That's a strict determinism. It's already contained in his concept. You and I don't see it because we need to wait for experience to that for that to happen. But if you're a Laplace's demon who can see everything, you can predict that in, in the future. And there's something, Leibniz isn't entirely that way, but that's sort of the classical conception of, of determinism. Hmm. I think where that fell apart and what Deleuze is kind of reading back into Leibniz then is, is again, coming out of the calculus and his interpretation of the calculus. Because we now know, like, why can't, to take a different example, why can't we predict the weather? Mm -hmm. with that kind of accuracy you know we're, we're if, if we know the past can't we tell where the weather is going to go in the future and the reason has to do with differential equations because you can posit the differential equation say for a weather system but the fact is you can't necessarily solve it mm. or you can't get a single solution or rather the solution is what now is known as a, a tractor which mm. can be made up of an infinite number of points which means that the solution to a differential equation for the weather is an infinite set of points that is an attractor. It's not everything, uh, but it's going to say the, the weather is going to go to one of those points, but mm. you can't say right now <laughs> which one of those points on the attractor the weather station is going to go to. That's not a lack of knowledge on our part. That's an objective ontological status of the weather system above you and above me or around us right now. The weather itself does not necessarily know where it's going to be a second from now. And once it occupies that point in the second from now, 
there's going to be another attractor. Right. Yeah, exactly. uh, It doesn't know where it's going to go. So that's one of the, I think, outcomes of where calculus has has taken us in in Deleuze's reading. And I think why he's so interested in it, because Laplace's demon was based on the success of the calculus. You know, Mm. we could Mm. we could say clearly when Halley's Comet is coming back next and we Mm -hmm. could use the calculus to say that. And so it seemed like eventually the calculus was going to reveal to us everything that took place in the future. But it took, it turned out that phenomena like Halley's comments are linear equations that are fairly easy to solve because okay. there's yeah. celestial mechanics. But most things and most equations are nonlinear and they do not permit of an easy solution or their solution is at best an attractor. This is why uh, the notion of the problem takes on an importance in Deleuze. There's a difference mm-hmm. in a differential equation between setting up the equation and saying what the problem is and then solving that equation and getting a solution. You can set up equations often that you cannot necessarily solve. So there's a difference between the problem, right, yeah. laying out the conditions of the problem and getting to the solution. That's another say, way of saying you can tell the problem, you can lay out the conditions of the problem of the weather now, but you're not going to be able to solve it. You're not going to be able to say where it's going to be one second from now. And that is something that calculus has taught us. That's what chaos theory is about. It's not a very right. good term. Because right. it's somewhat deterministic still. The weather pattern is going to go somewhere in that attractor, but we can't say where it's going to go. All that to say, it's calculus itself that has given us a non-deterministic understanding of how we should understand the future. It initially led to Laplace, but then it was calculus itself that said, really, everything Laplace is talking about is just a small, tiny subset of differential equations, most of which are not linear and therefore not easily solvable. I wonder how much this ties into like the notion of statistics and finding like, and this is with regard to, I guess, the most likely world mm-hmm. as well, because it would follow, you know, presumably follow this, the bell curve, et cetera, and the standard yeah. deviations from the mean, et cetera. Yeah. Statistics in that sense, I think is, is the law of large numbers. It deals with populations. Mm-hmm. Aggregates. You know, that's yeah, why a lot larger. of Darwinian stuff now is population studies because you can do things with large numbers that you can't do with an individual the prediction thing of the weather makes me think okay so we can't we can't ever predict it down to a singularity we can only give this range of uh points or potentials but those potentials would perhaps still follow sort of a bell curve distribution or I don't know if that's a yeah, question no, that's per right. se. I mean, there's a determinism there still. It's not like willy-nilly. It can do anything it wants to do. There's right. Because of time is time is the wild card, so to speak, that really <laughs> throws things off. This is intuitive, but like once Caesar crosses the Rubicon, that negates certain possibilities of the future, but that's still linear. So I don't I it's difficult to wrap my head around that notion of I guess an imminent time that ha- all possibilities are always possible at every point. I don't even know how to say it, to be honest. Well, Maybe a, every point a con- for a short A concrete example from Leibniz. This is where I mentioned earlier. Deleuze has this fabulous seminar in mm-hmm. the year on, uh, he was doing Leibniz called The Tavern. Mm-hmm. And it's an example I don't know where from Leibniz where he just asks about what freedom is and say he was sitting at home working and is trying to decide whether he should take a break and go meet his friends at a tavern and have a drink or if he should stay home working. And Deleuze reads this as it's false to say that to make that decision, I have two options, either stay at home or go to the tavern. Because he says those two things are not themselves simple. Like my staying at home has an entire multiplicity. He uses yeah. There's a manifold of affections and perceptions that are incorporated into it. It's my silence at home, me tapping on the computer, 
my engagement in my work, my frustration in my work. It's not a single thing. It's a yeah. multiplicity of affections. And same thing with going to the tavern. It has to do with, you know, the clanging of of glasses there, the conversation that goes on, my drinking the beer, my camaraderie with my friends. They're not two simple things that we have to decide between A and B. There's a whole set of unconscious perceptions and affections that he says are in the soul. So when I'm making a decision, it's not between these two options. It's really a multiplicity of affections yeah. and perceptions that are you know, at war with each other, coexist with each other. And at some point, I incline toward one direction rather than another direction, which is why Leibniz has a great phrase. It's, I incline without necessitating. <laughs> he goes, there's no necessity. I might finally decide to go to the tavern, but it has to do with this, and Deleuze will call this an idea. That's the problem. And it's a lot of differences in that manifold of that multiplicity that are effective, perceptive, a whole ensemble of things that eventually will incline in one direction rather than another without any of it being a kind of necessity. And that's why Deleuze likes to say there are conditions of the problem that will not necessarily tell you in and of themselves what the solution is. You can look at that entire multiplicity and that problem of your affections and perceptions and everything that's in your soul, in your mind, in your body, when you're sitting at home working, but thinking maybe of going out to meet your friends, but there's nothing in that problem that can determine what that solution is going to be until you get to the point where you finally incline and say, yeah, damn it, I'm going to go to the bar. I'm tired of doing my work. <laughs> so that's sort of what Deleuze, I think, is getting at when he says the problem is an important concept to him that we need to think of problems apart from the solution because we can't get to the solution necessarily. There's a, I don't know, always at the level of the, of the problem. And that's a way of undermining, I think, sort of classical determinism. You can know everything about that multiplicity and still not know in advance. You still can't foresee how that problem is going to resolve itself. There's nothing in being, there's nothing in the world, there's nothing in the state of things that makes that predetermined in advance. Yeah, that even reminds me back to Muad'Dib. He even will be aware of, okay, this moment that I'm in doesn't 100% match every specific variable, perhaps in my vision, but it still sort of is moving towards the same ultimate direction. Like the larger outline of the event is still visible, but the specific monadic, you know, sub monads or whatever you want to call them, those are still in play. Like he may be surprised perhaps by how a specific minor variable may pop up that he didn't necessarily even take into account, even though he has all of this perceptual data, let's call it. I'm curious how this would relate to individuation because he does sort of, there is a little bit of discussion of sort of, uh, evolution and I guess how systems evolve and so forth, because it feels like individuation would be tied to this almost linearity as well, because once you've individuated past a certain developmental point, your potential decreases right over time in terms of individuation. So I don't know, maybe you could work, talk a little bit about how the multiplicity of possibility is incorporated I, into that or does that even I, make sense i would say that just to piggyback off what you said coop this might be a place where someone like simon Don would would be where Deleuze would turn to rather than strictly to leibniz right. um there was a few passages that i thought sort of were nudging but, in the direction of some of simon Don. i'd have to look through the notes to find it but i well i, 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 I just, had noted something just off the top of my head i think with what you were saying about 
Yes, I, I, I do think for Simon Doan, you know, the at least for the biological individual, individuations accrue, he calls it amortization. They accrue these like little deaths that you can relate it to various types of entropy or whatever that we can think of it in terms of aging that restrict the possibilities of further individuation. And I think Simon Doan would say for Leibniz, one of the things that Deleuze would bring in perhaps to amplify Leibniz's thought is something like a pre-individual milieu, an annexed milieu from which to draw sources, charges of individuation. But I'm just kind of helping to to give maybe a little bit more scaffolding. If Dan, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on on that part. I do. I think uh, you're right. Simon is another one of those hidden figures that Deleuze does refer to a lot, but I think his influence was more than those references would indicate, precisely because he put the question of individuation on the philosophical map in a really strong way in France. And I suspect mm -hmm. even what Deleuze is saying about Leibniz is in part coming from Simon Don. That's what he likes about Leibniz. Spinoza gave him an ontology, an imminent ontology, but mm -hmm. Leibniz really helped him think through the nature of individuation, because it's true, Leibniz is focused on the individual. Substance is individual in mm -hmm. Leibniz. It's not God or nature, so it's a very different conception of uh, substance. But back to what Cooper was saying, I do think there's Deleuze's notion of a singularity, which also comes out of calculus, but it gives a metaphysical dimension to it. He says, every individual, you and I, are made up of singularities. So when in the Leibniz book, when he talks about Adam, for instance, he says Adam is a convergence of singularities. He's the first human created. He lives in a garden of Eden. He has Eve taken out from his, from his side, from his rib. Each of those are singularities, events, and they, they are what Adam is. But then he says, you reach a bifurcation. He can either sin eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or not sin. And those are two different singularities. And at some point, he's going to choose. And then there's going to be a continuity established between those first three singularities and one of those two singularities, to sin or not to sin, which is to say this. Deleuze is often seen as a philosopher of continuity. But his whole point is that continuity is constructed. Yes, right. you have a continuity as an individual, but at some point, you have to choose to sin like Adam or not to sin or whatever. <laughs> And at all point, that continuity is constructed out of a discontinuity between choosing between these two options, this bifurcation. So it's not as if for Deleuze, continuity is the basis of the world. Quite the contrary, difference is the basis of the world. Right. And you construct who and what you are. You construct that continuity out of these differences. Another way of, of saying it is the notion of the new. It's a very difficult concept to think about because Deleuze at one point asks what are the conditions for the production of the new? Like, how is something genuinely new produced in the world? Like something radically new, not given in the past. It's easy to think of an event that takes place that's tied to past actions. Everything is like that. But how to think of something that's genuinely new, that's a, a rupture with the past. He uses the phrase, a rupture with causality. Mm. Like, it doesn't have a causal relationship to the past. How can you think that? It's a question Bergson poses. And even more, how can you think of conditions of the new? Because if you have conditions, it, seem, it would seem that the new is already contained in those right, conditions. Yeah. <laughs> the effect and the predicates contained in the cause. Yes, the predicates are contained in the subject. So it's a question he poses, and it's a really difficult philosophical question. And Deleuze's response to that is to say, well, if the production of the new is the production of something different from everything that has preceded it, so it can't just be tied to previous causal relations, 
then the conditions of the new also have to be differential. In other words, there have to be principles of difference all the way down to the conditions so that every time those principles are actualized, they produce another difference, which is something new. And that's a very paradoxical oh, thing for Deleuze to <laughs> pursue. That's why it's not a principle of identity, because if the conditions are differential, such that every time they actualize themselves or the principles are instantiated, they by definition produce something new. That's why it's a metaphysics of difference for Deleuze. It's a metaphysics of the new. Everything that's produced at all times is the new. And then the question <laughs> for him is how things become regularized and normalized. This was one of his responses, by the way, to Foucault, because Foucault had this notion of resistance. You mm -hmm. know, how do we resist power? And Deleuze's response was, I see his problem. It's an important problem, but it's not a problem I have myself in my metaphysics, because for me, everything is resistance. In other words, he started with some, you know, things are new and they're exceptions to the norm. His question is not, how do you resist normalizing aspects of power, but quite the opposite. Given the fact that everything is new, where do these processes of regularization, normalization come from so that the new is almost immediately rendered not new and becomes normalized and regularized? It was almost an exact version inversion of the problem as Foucault was posing it. Hmm. And it's not a critique of Foucault, it's just that he got to that problem from a different direction than Deleuze got at that problem. They were both trying to get at the same thing, but with a different, if you like, a different metaphysics. Foucault right. would never have talked that way, but with yeah. a different set of presuppositions. So it's quite curious. Deleuze at one point says, I just didn't need a notion of resistance, even though lots of people talk about resistance, just because it was built into his metaphysics. There's always new things that are always escaping power, always escaping norms, always escaping the regular. And it seems like, you know, you can see this in Difference of Repetition where difference is, and this comes out in the very first chapter when he is actually talking about something that'll come back up in the fold, where he's talking about uh, Charoscuro, right? And he's talking about the best way to make monsters isn't always from the slumber of reason, but also the, the hypervigilance of thought. And it's where the ground is dissolved into the form. And this is why for him, differences are sort of inherently monstrous. And there's this whole almost, not to use, I'll use a Rousseau term. There's a like a conspiracy against difference to try to render it identical and there's a kind of moral overtone that gets itself forgotten and and an almost uh become normalized which is why i think he thinks of the dogmatic image of thought as orthodox and moral this moral image of thought where difference has to be sort of reconciled beforehand even to be be dealt with and it never really finds its place so there there does seem to be this this sort of idea about and i think this too is linked to what we brought up earlier about sort of unleashing the the simulacra there's something about how the fight against this this moral image of thought which always wants to bury differences or sort of not find a place for them or not find a, a, a true concept for them is also related to these other forms of transcendence that you sort of began, began your talk with that, right, with um, transcendental illusions, God, self, world, these are all classically, in the, in the classical image, these are all these sort of transcendent forms that, that we see, for example, with Leibniz, with pre-individual singularities, you know, one, one way in which the self can be dissolved or with affirming incompossibility, but of this world as the one world rather than, you know, uh, sort of amongst another that that's a way of 
dissolving the world into a more imminent series. And then, I mean, with God, I, off the top of my head, obviously there's many ways to talk about this, but I think about in um, logic of sense, this notion of counteractualization because it's this play of an anti-God or something like this, right? But that's just, just trying to think about uh, the, the moral consequences of what Deleuze is fighting from, uh, fighting against. Maybe that's why he approaches it from the other, other side, as you so well, well stated. You mentioned that etching by Goya called The Sleep of Reason Engenders Monsters. You can invert that with Kant, because Kant's whole point in the critique of pure reason is to say it's not the sleep of reason that engenders monsters. It is reason itself, pure reason. Mm -hmm. that engenders mm -hmm. monsters. That's the whole point of that book in the middle of the enlightenment to say, you can't just rely on reason because reason leads you not into errors. Errors are fairly easy to correct, but it mm -hmm. leads you into inevitable illusions. And that's a really remarkable claim, I think, on Kant's part. It's reason itself that engenders illusion. And there's nothing you can do to stop rationality from screwing itself up that way, <laughs> which is, you know, and so we have this idea of enlightenment. This is sort of touching on, on what I think we're trying to get at here, that it's a movement from darkness to the light. You know, that's mm -hmm. what the enlightenment means. That's what Plato's cave is all about. We always think of the sun and light, you know, enlightenment. I see when you say you see something, that means you understand something. Oh, I see, you know, you it's in the light. And if it's the dark, then it's, um, it's not understood. And mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what Deleuze is going against. You mentioned chiaroscuro, which he discusses. Yeah in the Leibniz book, uh, partly with regard to painting, chiaroscuro means clear, obscure. obscure. Yeah. And it's, you know, Rembrandt is one of the great, you know, not the only one user chiaroscuro. But if you take that and translate that into philosophical terms, I think it's Deleuze's way of undoing Descartes' notion of the clear and distinct, which is also tied to enlightenment. You go from the obscure and confused, which is where we begin, and we make ourselves attain clear and distinct ideas. One of the great things about Deleuze, and this comes from his reading of Leibniz, is to break apart the clear and distinct and yep. the obscure and confused, yep. and to say, well, no, the problem, when we talk about problems, they are distinct, but obscure. And then our actual perceptions or our ideas, they might be clear, but by their very nature, they're confused. So yeah. it's never that we move in enlightenment from obscurity and confusion to the clear and distinct. His example that he gives us this is in perception. You know, if I'm by the beach, I hear the noise of a wave, and that's clear to me. But I actually don't hear or perceive all the interactions that are producing the sound of that wave, the molecules of the water, you know, hitting each other, and how big that wave is, all those things that produce that clear sound to me. Those are confused to me, but in and of themselves, they are distinct. And yet, to me, they remain obscure. For Deleuze, that's the difference between the problem and its solution. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very important that he breaks up that kind of rationalist idea that we move from obscurity and confusion to the clear and distinct. Michel Serre somewhere has a related image where he says, you know, now what we know about the universe is no longer the sun is the image of enlightenment. You go out at night and you see a million suns up in the sky, right. each of which you know, are their own sense. But as philosophers, we need to take up that image and say, that's what philosophy is. We actually inhabit the night. Mm -hmm. And up in the sky, there are a million suns glowing in different ways and yellow dwarves and red giants. You know, we just, mm -hmm. we need to get rid of this image we have that the sun is the image of enlightenment. And I think Deleuze gets at that by trying to kind of tear apart that 
Cartesian linkage between the clear and distinct as if we get to you know some form of reason where everything becomes clear I mean that's something Deleuze and lots of other people have gotten rid of and I think your your reference to chiaroscuro in painting is a good way of getting at that we need to do philosophy in a kind of chiaroscuro manner mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. I think that that's brilliant and actually that was one of my one of my questions that I had here I actually pulled a quote from you and I'll quote you here briefly uh you say Descartes' principle of clear and distinct ideas is broken down into two irreducible values, which he just stated, which can never be reunited to constitute a quote-unquote natural light, which is, I think, a, a kind of a refrain throughout different repetition that he wants to fight against. You say conscious perceptions are necessarily clear but confused, while unconscious perceptions are distinct but necessarily obscure. Indeed, Leibniz can be said to have developed one of the first theories of the unconscious, a theory that is very different from the one developed by Freud. The difference is that Freud conceived the unconscious in a conflictual or oppositional relationship to consciousness and not a differential relationship. So I thought that that was really interesting because those are themes that show up back in the fold. You point to the fact that in Anti-Oedipus, they kind of point to a differential unconscious, which has its ties in Fechner, who I think also shows up in the fold at towards the end, I believe. I found all of that to be very helpful because there's so much going on in Antiochus, and I think that's not something that we paid enough attention to, this notion of a, of a differential unconscious, and that Leibniz makes room for it, right? This, uh, these micro-perceptions that, that you kind of got into with uh, reference to the tavern, right? These, you know, this, this choice, this isn't a choice between two things, but it's, it's already kind of populated and swarming with these, these affections and these, this differential unconscious, I'll just say again. Now, I, I like all these comments because I, I think it's true. Uh, Anti-Oedipus needs to be read from the viewpoint of Leibniz and everything we've been talking about here. And even Nietzsche, I think, is, is Leibnizian at certain points. We don't think of him in that way, but he, he himself says Leibniz was the first person to come up with a notion of the unconscious. And then Freud obviously stole, you know, stole. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I shouldn't say that, but he got the idea of the unconscious in part from Nietzsche and, and says so. It reminds me of a passage in Nietzsche in his early book called Dawn, where he says, supposing you're walking down the street and you see someone laughing at you, you can respond uh, in a lot of different ways. You can get angry. You can look at yourself and try to figure out what is it that is uh, provoking laughter in someone else. You can be reflective and say, well, I don't know how, but somehow I increased the amount of laughter and joy in the world today for right. reasons I don't know. You know, and he, he goes on like all these all these ways you could respond to that. And he says, in each case, there's a what he would call a drive <laughs> yeah, at yeah. work in us that we don't know about. But that nonetheless is making us react in a particular way. And it's just another way of getting at the same thing we were talking about with the tavern or mm -hmm. in the passage you just read, uh, Taylor, that you know there's a kind of multiplicity of, of drives that is a way of talking about the unconscious that even Nietzsche admits is indebted to Leibniz for mm. uh, the formulation he wants to give it. And I think Deleuze picks up on all of these themes when he and Guattari write, write anti-Oedipus. And um, it's not the usual notion of the unconscious, but it's, um, again, one of those hidden operative themes that's going on in, in anti-Oedipus. Oh, this is very excellent. Before you know, we convene, obviously, I do want to give you a chance to talk about what you've been talking about. Coop, did you have anything else you wanted to, maybe a last question or two? Dan, I've been having this notion that, and I guess it goes back to when we read uh, 
first read Simon Duffy's Deleuze in the History of Mathematics. And I've asked this question to a number of different people about this idea that Leibniz really is an uncredited or he Deleuze kind of developed at least some aspects of the body without organs concept from Leibniz. And I thought it was really interesting because I, I had always assumed that The Fold was an earlier work in, in uh, Deleuze's career. So it's interesting that it's such a late work and that he doesn't, in all this discussion of bodies and monads, he never once uses the phrase body without organs. But I get this very distinct image of of this sort of celestial body without organs that is comprised, of, you know, it's it's monads all the way down. The monads are sort of analogous to part objects or even zones of intensity on the body without organs in this sort of fractal cosmology almost. I don't know if that you know, strikes you as having, because I think, I guess the uh, the monads right there, they have a whole, or their vision of the whole is complete, but not per se. And God sort of flows through each of those monads all the way down in this very, you know, it goes back to the differential calculus thing. Mm -hmm. ultimately that's a very interesting observation that i've never noticed that the body without organs does not appear at all in the fold if that's the case because mm -hmm. as you're saying that go in, in two directions it could be the cosmic body without organs or the monad could be seen perhaps as a body without organs because a body without organs when it comes down to it is really um it's an embryo that's what a body it's an egg as he mm -hmm. says because an egg is in fact a body that will develop into an organism, and an organism is a collection of organs. Right. The egg itself, an embryo itself, does not have any organs. It's like a, a stem cell. Mm -hmm. That's why stem cells are so important in embryological research, because they'll develop into nerve cells and neurons and bone cells and everything else. But in themselves, they're this kind of pure potentiality, uh, kind of virtuality. And I think that's why Deleuze is interested in the notion of the body without organs. I'm not sure why he insist on using that phrase because in, in difference from repetition, he will sometimes just talk about the embryo as the domain of virtualities. But why it does not appear in in the Leibniz book uh, is an interesting question because it gets back to a comment I made earlier that Deleuze refers to Raymond Ruyer in mm -hmm. the Leibniz book, but not in the seminars he gives while he's writing the Leibniz book. And it's Ruyer who, more than any other philosopher that I know, emphasizes the role of the embryo. And in fact, he says philosophy needs to get away from its obsession with consciousness and ask about you know questions of consciousness and instead should focus on the embryo. Because the embryo, he says, is our primary consciousness. He has a very odd uh, <laughs> way of, of putting that. But um, you, know, you could say, what has created your brain and your consciousness? Right. Well, it's your embryo because mm. your embryo produced your brain, it produced your stomach, it produced your body. We are desperately now, and uh, it's in the news, talking about artificial intelligence. Essentially, we're trying to replicate the brain. In fact, I could say just a little word, like what I'm working on, I'm interested in technology uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the early notions of technology is it's an externalization of bodily functions and organs. So a cup is literally an externalization of our cupped hands, or a baby's bottle is an externalization of the mother's breast or hammer is literally an externalization of my forearm and fist. They're all externalizations of the body, but that do something better than what the, the body can do. But Raymond Rier takes this notion and sort of takes a step back because Bergson had noticed at one point that, say, an amoeba, which is also an animal that doesn't have organs, can nonetheless 
digest food, even though it doesn't have a digestive tract, it can react to its environment, even though it has zero sense organs, and it can act intelligently and think, even though it doesn't have a brain. So Riera picks up on that and says, what that seems to mean is that organs are themselves something like technological artifacts that have been developed in the course of evolution to produce organisms. So an amoeba doesn't need a stomach, but maybe it does a better job if it has a stomach. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need sense organs to sense its environment, but maybe you and I do better because we have specialized organs, mm -hmm. which are like artifacts, who undertake these things. So I think Deleuze picks up on that and says, well, then the embryo, the body with our organs, becomes this kind of matrix as a philosophical concept of virtualities. It's a productive principle. It's an area where things are, are produced. And I could see him taking that notion and transferring it to, to Leibniz in the question of individuation. And um, so I'm just talking out loud here to say, I'm not sure why he doesn't do that. And even though he refers to Rier in the Leibniz book and yeah. sees Rier as one of Leibniz's contemporary disciples, he nonetheless doesn't develop the notion of the body without organs or the idea that philosophy should focus on the embryo rather than consciousness, even though that would almost seem to be implicitly there in Leibniz um, already. Just rambling on, trying to answer. No, this, no I think this that's good. Really that's good. <laughs> I was just going to ask, is there any relation to, and I, I'm not very good at these concepts, so bear with me, but I guess prehension, extension in terms of the development of those tools, the organs themselves? Absolutely. I mean, that very notion of prehension, I think that's why uh, Whitehead likes that notion of prehension because mm -hmm. we use comprehension, you know, to understand something right for, to be prehensive has to do with the hand. It's, it's manual prehensile things means the hand is involved. I do think Whitehead saw this, that we think not just with our brains, but we think through our technologies, you know, there's a prehensile quality of thinking mm -hmm. and it's not just a, a consciousness quality. That's why uh, Whitehead called his philosophy, a philosophy of the organism. And right. I think he too was like Gruyere saying we need to <laughs> make the shift to the organism. And he's not as strong on this as Gruyere, but implicitly to the embryo. It's the embryo doing the thinking. An embryo already knows how to make a brain. And we are desperately trying to do artificial intelligence <laughs> to use our brain to create an artificial <laughs> brain. But the embryo already knows how to do that. It already mm -hmm. can do what we are attempting to do with our brain. So, you know, we should take the embryo as the model of philosophy and not consciousness, which is a secondary production of the embryo. And yet we've been so focused on consciousness because, well, we're conscious beings, so we think that's great. But what is the unconscious condition of having a brain and having consciousness? It's the embryo, which has produced that thing. So why not? Why is philosophy not focused on that? and instead focusing on this production of the embryo, which is our brain and consciousness. I think it's a very important move that uh, I think Whitehead makes. I think Briere is pointing to. I think Deleuze does it in his own way. I think that fifth chapter in Difference and Repetition kind of goes mm -hmm. in this direction, mm -hmm. making the embryo the focus of philosophy. But it's not something that's really been picked up on, I think, as much as it uh, should be. That's funny because Lacan has that kind of joke about, I think, with my feet. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We think, I think we think with our entire bodies and right, we right, think that we, right. uh, we presume we only think with our consciousness. And I think that too is, is not the case. I just did a control F through the PDF. Egg shows up twice, not counting Heidegger, but egg shows, up, <laughs> egg shows up twice. The second time it's kind of just this offhand mention, but the first time he says, 
this is in page four. So he just mentioned uh, origami, the organism, organic folds. And he says, on the one hand, the division of parts and matter does not take place without a decomposition of the curvilinear movement or the inflection. This could be seen in the development of the egg, where numerical division is simply the condition of morphogenetic movements and invagination as folding. On the other hand, the formation of the organism would remain an improbable mystery or miracle if matter divided itself into independent points, even to infinity. But it becomes increasingly probable and natural when we are given an infinity of intermediary already folded states, each of which comprises a, a cohesion at its level, just as it is improbable to form, form a word by chance with separate letters, but is far more probable with syllables or inflections. So I think that that's at least a nod to obviously what you just said, Dan, but, but perhaps a little bit to Cooper's question and gives it a lot of credence for maybe why it's been a refrain for, for Cooper to, to sort of think through and ask about. So the fact that, that at least Deleuze brings up the egg, and as you said, it's, it's something that shows some different repetition. Obviously, there's a whole plateau kind of devoted to it, um, you know, in, in A Thousand Plateaus. Um, so the fact that the egg shows up and he gives a kind of thinking through of it there, you know, it's interesting that 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 would be there and and, and, it, and it gives a little little bit of a nod to it but you're right i mean there is this essay and i'll have to make sure that coop and i add it to the list of things we want to read but it's isn't it one of the last things Rie? and maybe it was i can't remember if it was embryogenesis in the world or something like this um yes of, that's a posthumous book by Rie. yeah yeah and i think that that is one of the few things that was translated there was some random translations of his in the 50s or 60s I can't remember. And if it's not, then, um, that was, yeah, there were some random translations, just excerpts from that book that came out in English soon as, uh, okay. I don't know how now the book is, was published, I think in 2013. So it's out in French now, although it's funny you mentioned that cause I checked and it's actually already out of print. Wow. Well, but it, well, yeah. If I could maybe, uh, the Twitter community, or if I'm lucky, Google will help me. I just, Googled it and uh, I didn't I didn't see anything, but maybe there's a way of getting a copy of at least the excerpts because I do think that that uh, if, as you said, Rio is one of the you know the the contemporary disciples of Leibniz, that would that would give more food for thought for me and Coop to think through this yeah. question of this relation. But yeah, I'm I'm really glad that most of the people I think Cooper that you've asked you've more or less flummoxed. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. But, but but also perhaps <laughs> the fact that we dedicated this time and prepared Leibniz beforehand and we were thinking through these things that we were given the proper context to finally situate this, yeah. this question. So, Dan, I, I think uh, I really think you did us a service. You did us a solid there um, and gave us the trail to follow. I, well, vice versa. And back at you, I appreciate you finding that that quote. And I can maybe tell the story because I looked into this at one point, you know, the mm -hmm. two two bodily, you know, there's some bodies that are circles, uh, you know, radial symmetry, like um, jellyfish, but we have bilateral symmetry. In other words, right. we have left and right that are parallel to each other. It's a question of how that developed, but um, it's a question of how it happens also in embryogenesis, like a cell starts out as a circle. And I, I was curious about this, and I, I actually bought books about, a couple of books about embryogenesis to see how it happened. And it was quite interesting to me because at some point when the embryo develops, its cells divide. And then at a certain point, they arrange themselves in a circle. And it's at that point when they're in this circular form, at some point they fold. This is why Deleuze is interested in the notion of the fold. 
And that's what creates bilateral symmetry in the body. So initially we begin with radial symmetry, but then we fold. And for the life of me, I looked at three or four books to say, well, what, how does that circle of cells know how to fold? You know, why does it fold this way, you know, starting at the top and not left and right? How do those cells know I'm going to fold in this way? You know, I'm at the corner of the fold or the big part of the fold. And I can meet that guy over on the other side. And this is sort of what that quote you just mm -hmm. read is trying to get at. Those are not distinct points. They're not just a bunch of 64 cells that are separate from each other. This is Rier's point. Those cells together, a stem cell, and then its development constitutes what he calls an absolute form. It's not consciousness in the sense we think of consciousness, but there's a kind of awareness of the totality. Otherwise, without that presupposition, there's no explanation of how and why those that circle of cells folds in the particular way it does. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is Rier's uh, contribution. It, pure forms or absolute forms, he calls that. And that's why he says it's a kind of consciousness, but not anything like the consciousness of the brain. But we have to posit something like that there, even to account for the simplest activities that take place yeah. in embryogenesis. And it was funny in these books. They didn't know how to explain it, but they gave a name to it. I forget what the name is. And it's almost as if, as long as we can give a name to it, then we know what's going on. And it's a Latin sounding name, you know, and it sounds very scientific and technical. At this point, da-da-da-da-da takes place. But the da-da-da-da-da is never explained. And for the life of me, I, I couldn't find any embryology mm. book that said how it happened. They just gave a name to it. And I think the <laughs> is right on, on on that question. The general viewpoint that Deleuze has on evolution, and maybe I can just read this real quick just to highlight this because I think it doesn't exactly follow, but it's kind of within the same ballpark. Development does not go from the small to the large through growth or augmentation, but from the general to the special through the differentiation of an initially undifferentiated field, sometimes under the action of the external milieu, sometimes under the influence of internal forces that are directive and directional, but non-constitutive or preforming. So yeah, that does kind of nicely dovetail into what you just kind of described, I think. That's perfect. And that that is the body without organs. So it, that's answer, <laughs> you're answering your own question. That's a description of the body without organs. Well, like a stem cell, it's undifferentiated, but it will differentiate itself into bone cells, you know, neurons, whatever, skin cells. And that's exactly how embryogenesis takes place. Yeah. You go from something undifferentiated, general, to more specific things. So my body, your body, <laughs> is a stem cell that's differentiated itself into hair and eyes and nose and various yeah. organs. Huh. But it began as an undifferentiated right. embryo. This is one aspect where I have to wrap my head around what what the hell time is. At least a certain component of of what we call time would be, because I think I can't really draw that relationship very well or understand it, yeah, not I to agree. put you on the I, spot necessarily, but this is just well, something I've been I, thinking through a lot. I can't answer it either, although <laughs> I will say one way I kind of understand it right in this context is that it's a movement from the virtual to the actual, which in the context of embryogenesis, it's a movement from the embryo to its development differentiation into an organism, what you and I are now, which is not a succession, you know, but right. that's the time I'm living right now. That's the time you're living. I'm an ex-embryo. Or I am a developing embryo right now. I used to be a single cell, and that cell differentiated itself into skin cells and brain cells and my stomach. And that process is still going on through lots of chemical interactions in my body. Mm -hmm. And that is my 
organic temporality that I am living right now. I'm conscious of, you know, the brain and whatever this little portion of my body is, is conscious, but the reality of my body is this ongoing development of my of my embryo. And that's not a linear sort of thing. That's this problem that's getting resolved in various ways. The problem of life that my embryo has, has resolved by producing this organism. That's sort of an intuitive way of understanding. But Deleuze says that time goes from the virtual to the actual. It does not go from one actual moment to another. That's a kind of false understanding. And if you translate that comment to my body, that's what it means. The temporality of my body is the actualization of me as an embryo. And again, I'll go back to Riera. I think we need to take the embryo as the model for philosophy and not this thing, one thing that the embryo has produced, which is the brain and consciousness. See, this is the jumping off point where I think that the cinema books really feel like there's so much relevance with regard to the time image and the movement image, etc. I'm very eager to dive into those works because I have this sort of I've developed this obsession with Dune and, and Deleuze and Guattari's work that I won't, you know, I've already talked enough about it. I can it, tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that, yeah, I, I just think is fascinating. I want to write this whole book and get into that aspect of it. Go ahead, Taylor. I'll let you, if you have a last question uh, I, or any I, you know, comments just, or uh, et cetera. I'm really happy that, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I'm very glad that we, we've got a trajectory of, of topics now to, to go through. I was trying to look and see if the Albert Dalk book was translated, and it's not because I know he shows up also in that fifth chapter of Just Repetition that you bring up, right? The what it's like the egg and epigenesis or something like this. I know it shows up in the fold. Uh, yeah, the egg it's... And, and its organizing dynamism. That's what it's called. Uh, what I'm tr loosely translating it. I didn't see that that was translated. So that would be another source, I think, for this question of embryogenesis alongside, obviously, what you brought up with Ruyere. So, um, you know, I'm not sure if that was one of the books that, um, that you looked at for this simply because Deleuze uses it. I haven't read Dalk. I think I looked it up at some point. There's another thinker Riera right. talks about a lot, which is Spellman, because they were, I believe it was Spellman who was doing uh, experiments with embryos. You know, essentially you separate out an embryo, twins, they'll develop separately. It's just trying to, for him to discern what exactly is the uniqueness of the embryo and the status of the embryo and the various gradients and and uh, potentialities that lie there. So there's Dalk, there's Spellman, there's a number of people. Riera talks about all these people, so I, I still think right, right. not to keep bash, you know, keep tooting that horn. But Cooper, I'll say this too. I'll look forward to your book. I, sh I think you should <laughs> you should write that and write that soon. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the time mm -hmm. stuff. I do think the cinema books introduce a new aspect into Deleuze's philosophy of time because he says Kant is again an important figure. It's funny, even though he says Kant is an enemy. He often goes back to Kant in lots of different ways. And our usual notion of time, he says, is based on movement, like a day is the movement of the earth on its axis. Right. Yeah. And a year is the movement of the earth right. around the sun. And a month is the movement of the moon around the earth, you know, relatively speaking. None of those movements are commensurable with each other. They don't fit very well. That's the problem of calendars. Yeah. You know, right. uh, that's why we leap have year. leap year, because they don't fit together. And that's sort of Deleuze's point on time. There is no homogenous time in the world in which everything is unflowing. That's a convention we've we've created. But I think he says at one point, like if a lion is chasing a gazelle, it's not like that chase is happening in a single time. 
the gazelle has its time and the lion has its time. You know, if the lion's going to get the gazelle, it's because it incorporates finally the gazelle into its movement and into its own temporality. But there are two different times in the same way the moon has its own temporality and the earth has its own temporality, as does the sun. And the whole problem of calendars is to create the illusion, <laughs> a convention, where it seems like there's just one time in which these things are unfolding, but that's that's not the case. So one way of thinking about time correctly is to get rid of, you know, to see that clearly and, and don't think of this conventional time. It's also one of the um, contributions of the Midwest in the United States to uh, world culture is the invention of time zones, because that too was a problem at a certain point. I live in Lafayette, Indiana, which is about two hours south of Chicago. And in the 1840s or whatever, noon in Lafayette was whenever the sun was directly overhead. And noon in Chicago was whenever the sun was directly overhead at Chicago. But that meant Chicago and Lafayette, even in the 1800s, had different times. They had their own clocks, depending on whenever noon occurred <laughs> everywhere. And same every town around the world. It was a problem for the railroads because they needed to have timetables yeah, and schedules. Right. So the trains going from Didn't Chicago come. two hours down to Lafayette. So they had this idea of creating time zones. So not each city had its own time, but we'll make 24-hour zones and make everyone in that zone have the same time. And there was a lot of resistance to it. It became a political issue. It's like in Europe when uh, there was the idea everyone should convert to the euro and give up their own currencies. This mm -hmm. is the same problem. People didn't want to give up their time. You know, for Lafayette to be on Chicago time, hell no, we got our own time. We're not going to. But they made it happen. And uh, it was because of the railroads in the Midwest. And there's a word in English that still reflects this political dimension. When we say you got railroaded into something, mm. that's, <laughs> that's, that's the great. politics of time. <laughs> People were forced to submit to this convention of time zones, like we were forced to co uh, commit to the convention of the calendar. But both of those things have kind of distorted the reality of time. And that's sort of what Deleuze gets at. And, and But then he says, what really happened in the end was with Kant, that time was separated from movement and time became autonomous on its own. And that's something he thinks Kant introduced into, into philosophy. So the first thing to think about time is to realize it's tied to movements, none of which are commensurable. And we have all these conventions like calendars and time zones to create this illusion that there's only one time in the universe. But then you have to do this other break and say time is no longer tied to movement and becomes what he calls the pure and empty form of time. That's that's really where he's going mm -hmm. with regard to time. But it's, again, a huge um, metaphysical endeavor that he's right. up to. But I just wanted to say, you know, you mentioned the cinema books. I think that is something that he does not mention, I know, in Difference and Repetition. So even Deleuze is kind of learning on his metaphysics of time. And when he gets to the cinema books, there's a reason it's the movement image and the time image, because he's using cinema to think through this problem of how time, which used to be tied to movement, becomes freed from movement. And Mm -hmm. Curiously, it's it's uh, filmmakers that seem to have been his entry point into that. People like Tarkovsky. Yeah. He wrote a book called Sculpting in Time. That's how he sees cinema. It's, totally. it's essentially yeah. art form having to do directly with time. It is interesting. I've talked about this a bit before because I love film editing because you're creating this continuity through these disparate you know, not everything is shot at the same time, et cetera. It's these different times, different physical locations, et cetera, but you can still create the perception of this unified system that sort of typically makes sense, right? You know, most of the time films make sense, but they don't necessarily have to. But I just think that whenever you are actually 
seeing behind the hood, so to speak, of how that works, there's something just immensely creative, perhaps. I don't know. It's it's fascinating to experience that unity come into being, or at least that perception of unity from disparate multiplicity is fascinating. That is brilliant, though. That is exactly what Deleuze is talking about in Leibniz, right? You you create continuity in a life, and uh, continuity in a <laughs> yeah. film is... Narrative, a right? From, you know, these disparate shots that are taken, you know, some films all over the world at different times, right. you have 50 takes and you choose one <laughs> of them and then uh, you pull them all together. That's actually a brilliant, um, I think, example of what Leibniz is on about. Continuity in a film is constructed, uh, and Deleuze would say, but that's equally true everywhere. Continuity right, yeah. is a construct that's made out of differences. <laughs> so that's brilliant. I like that. It is. That's so good. I <laughs> love that. That's great. I was looking at Cinema 2 earlier because there was something in the fold. Basically, he just says that, you know, when cinema, one thing that cinema did was that it basically helped us to uh, give us reasons to believe in this world. And and that we have to understand that kind of how as we talked about it, where it's it's not about believing in the best of all possible worlds anymore. It's a different optimism where it is this Nietzschean, this is the one world we have, but we need reasons to believe in it. And the quote that stood out to me was whether Christians are atheists in our universal schizophrenia, we need reasons to this world. I think that's, that's basically what he said. And that jumped out to me when I was reading about the optimism that Leibniz was criticized for. But I think that it's, it's not a bad sentiment. And again, that's another reason why I think if we tackled the fold, which is extremely dense and difficult, then maybe we are starting to be prepared for the cinema books, which are just as, those are just as hard in a certain way. So, but Dan, I guess I'll give you just one, uh, if you wanted to say anything else you're, you're, you're working on or doing during the sabbatical, but if you feel like you've, you've already discussed that with, with uh, your interest in technology and you're going to keep that general, but I will let you have the last word. Just want to give you that, that form. Well, thanks. Yeah, I don't want to do too much about technology. It is what I'm working on. But I, I, I will thank you because I spent a few hours preparing for this today, rereading uh, the looking through difference and repetition and the the fold and even going back and reading some of my own stuff, which is also always a scary. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> exercise. I don't know if you've had this. I thought they were okay. You know, there are a few things, you know, I, I got a little tense on reading my own stuff. Ah, that's not quite right. But um, <laughs> uh, happily, I, I don't know if you've had this experience. There are other things I go to and feel like, uh, no, I can't believe I said that back back then. But it's what the nature of thought is. You know, the great, <laughs> uh, you know, the great philosophers are always writing and they're always changing and always becoming, you know, and I might have mentioned this last time. One of my favorite lines in Difference and Repetition is in the preface where Deleuze says, we always write out of our ignorance because to put off writing until you know something is to put it off until tomorrow and then the next day and forever. Mm -hmm. Like if you wait until you know something, then you're just never going to write because, uh, you know, there's always more to learn. And yep. I feel that all the time. I always, It's a good excuse to read more books because you feel like you're doing, doing research. But Deleuze's thing is, no, at some point, well, at all points, stop doing the research and just do the writing because there's always going to be more, more to read. So that means when you do go back and look at stuff you read, it's okay if you feel like it wasn't perfect. Because if you wait until you think it's perfect, you're never gonna, never gonna write. So just, just keep going and um, get it out. Affirm the dice throw, right? You know, you the gotta... dice throw exactly yeah. at all moments at every time. That's how you <laughs> That's exactly right. I appreciate you sticking with us. And it feels like obviously we could go for two and a half more hours, but we've had you for long enough and you should get back to your weekend and enjoy <laughs> yourself. 
there's a lot more topics that we talked about that I hadn't planned, but again, that's, that is part of the rolling with, uh, with the dice. There's, there's plenty more that we can talk about again. Um, perhaps we can make this at least a yearly thing. I would love to have you back at some point. Um, maybe when you're coming back from France, it'll even be, um, better coordinating our our times like you just mentioned right with the railroads and whatnot i mean we <laughs> exactly. we are we are out of sync a little bit we're out of joint. time is out of joint right yes we are out of joint <laughs> but uh we will um let you enjoy the rest of your weekend i thank you again for coming back and talking to us it's been excellent and you gave Amazing. us you gave us a great answer on live needs in the body without <laughs> organs now cooper uh no one can say he's crazy uh well okay on that point <laughs> at least on that point yeah um but in any case we'll be in touch i just found the morpho it's called there is no subconscious i don't know if this is his title but uh it's I just emailed Cooper the essay. If you don't have a copy of it, Dan, I can send that to you. Obviously, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if you have the, you said it's, it's out of print in French, so you may not have a copy of the French, but I at least got a translation of the, uh, the excerpt that you mentioned. If you need a copy of that, I can send that your way, but if not, we'll be in touch because this will drop next week. So you'll hear from me within a few days and it's really great to have you on here. Well, thanks uh, both uh, to both of you, Cooper and Taylor. I really enjoy coming on. It, it's incredibly uh, stimulating these discussions. So, uh, and as you say, we move in directions we don't necessarily anticipate, but that's um, that's yep. what's good about these conversations. So, I hope I can come back on. So, yeah, we'd love that. Yeah, maybe we can look at exactly. the cinema because I recall I think last time you said the cinema lectures were far better than the translated versions of the books. That there's a lot of material that's not referenced, and the translations are not that great as well? It's more Deleuze's fault. They're really just such uh, condensed summaries of what he was saying. It's almost like there's no narrative. It's just like, here's yeah. a summary of this. And, and it, it goes so quickly. It feels like, they feel like class yeah. notes you know, taken by students, but it's actually Deleuze's class notes for his own courses. You know, and it's four years of seminars that took place every week for about three hours. And all that, you know, just gets condensed. So it's not so much they're bad. It's just, um, I can't, reconstitute everything Deleuze is thinking simply from the books. And now that we have the gotcha. seminars, there's an incredible amount of material there. We're still but, working on those translations, but probably in the next year, we're going to have all those um, cinema seminars uh, in English. So I hope people start to use them because I think it's a great resource. I mean, one of the first seminars I ever read was the one where he references and talks through Taxi Driver, but I didn't realize there were four years of it. But that's a great idea, Coop. We could we could look at some with and alongside, maybe in the interim, because I do think if we're going to do some cinema stuff, the seminars are eminently readable. The books are, as Dan said, it's not so much the translation, right? It's just so compact. It's so dense. In any case, Dan, thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy your weekend. Shout out to Freud. Happy birthday <laughs> to Freud, right? Yeah. Even if uh -huh. he okay. stole the idea of the unconscious, as, <laughs> as Dan didn't say. Um, thanks again, Dan. I said nothing. <laughs> yeah. I said nothing. We're going to let you sign off. We're going to be on just for a moment because next week we have an open slot. So we, oh, we right. need to figure yeah. out what we want to read and, and, and talk about, and maybe, maybe some of the Rie. I mean, that's, that could be it. Yeah. Um, that could be fun. That might, that might actually be, you gave us embryogenesis as the, <laughs> the line of flight to take. So uh, yeah. enjoy your, your weekend and your evening. Have a great day. Thanks to both of you. This has been incredible. Hope to see Excellent. you again soon. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. bye.
Once again, thanks to Dan Smith for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.